Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On the heels of strong jobs and economic reports, the House passed a bipartisan $1 trillion infrastructure deal that President Biden has signed into law. Democrats continue to negotiate another $1.85 trillion social spending package. Meanwhile, more leading aerospace and defense firms posted earnings as Boeing settled a shareholder lawsuit against current and former directors accusing them of lax oversight in the development of the company's 737 MAX jetliner that suffered two deadly crashes that plagued the company uh, and continues, unfortunately, to plague the company. Anglo-French tensions continue to simmer, and the commercial aviation world mourns the passing of former Airbus CEO Jean Pearson, who helped grow the European firm from a niche player into the world's leading commercial aircraft maker. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm, agency partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy right here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vargo. Thanks. It's always a pleasure, Vargo. Great to be on, Vargo. Thank you. Uh, thanks uh, very much uh, to you all, especially since we are recording a little bit later in the day. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Raphael USA sponsors our coverage, or I should say sponsored our coverage, of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting in Washington, D.C. Ron, uh, start us off as you do each week, right? Earnings, strong jobs numbers, as well as economic data, uh, and we now have an infrastructure measure that is uh, law. Walk us through what all of this means and how investors have greeted it, because it was a pretty strong week on the street. Well, if you, if you look at the, the market performance in the week, the S&P was up uh, about 2% uh, for the week. Um, the strongest performers uh, on the week in A&D were the aerospace names. Uh, both Boeing and Embraer were up about 8% on the week. Uh, Spirit Aerosystems was up uh, 10% on the week. Uh, and then we saw the lessors rally pretty uh, hard in, into the end of the week. Uh, Air Lease alone was up about almost 15% on Friday. Uh, and, and what got things going, I don't actually think were the employment numbers or anything like that. It was the news of uh, Pfizer's COVID pill, um, you know, I, I think signaled to the market maybe an end, an end of the pandemic and that we're moving into a phase that it's, it's, a, it's a more endemic thing. And there's a therapeutic out there that can really reduce uh, the, the probability of uh, hospital stay. And, uh, and we, we saw the commercial names rally really, really hard on that and the broader market too. So I think that that's what was a big driver for the market this week. Uh, if you look at all the other metrics that we tend to look at, uh, you know, fuel prices have been hovering kind of in the high 70s, low 80s. That really hasn't changed for oil. Um, interest rates um, have pulled back just a smidge, but we're still kind of about where we were. And I think the biggest change was, was, uh, the, the the news of the new therapeutic. And um, what about uh, U.S. earnings? We had a, a lot of uh, companies report right La last week. Uh, there were some uh, negative surprises, I think we can say, coming from Lockheed, from Northrop Grumman, and from Boeing about supply chain and labor cost issues. Uh, this week, we had more names uh, report, Huntington Ingalls being one of them, right? You mentioned Spirit, uh, I think Parsons, Mercury, Lidos, L3 Harris, Maxar. Uh, it was a big week. Um, what, yeah, what so it was an interesting mix. The services companies, obviously, because they don't have supply chains exactly per se, right? I mean, it's more labor for them as opposed to uh, having to deal with inventory and supply chains. The services companies 
um, you know, kind of writ large, uh, uh, had better numbers, I think, than um, the companies that actually make things, right? Because they didn't have to deal with supply chains. I mean, they do have labor issues to deal with, but um, the supply chain thing didn't impact them as much. So, you know, kind of broadly, most of most of the services companies did did better. Not all of them. Um, you know, I'd say you know one of the one of the standouts uh, was was Maxar. Uh, Maxar was having some issues with one of their their new satellites, and uh, it looks like they might have turned the corner on it. Um, so I think you know the shares rebounded uh, nicely when they reported because that's that's how the street interpreted it. Uh, but this week was very different than the previous week. I mean, last week was just a, a big surprise with the supply chain issues and some of the labor issues going on uh, at the large defense primes. And and honestly, the large defense primes in terms of the 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 resource issues they were having, it was less than other industrial companies, but it was still enough to have an impact. And I don't think people expected that. Uh, but this this week went broadly uh, a little bit better. Sash, walk us through European earnings and uh, market reaction and drivers, right? I mean, we have similar simmering Anglo-French uh, uh, tensions that seem to, uh, unfortunately, might be getting uh, worse uh, given the Northern Ireland agreement is involved in it also, right? And we've talked about that dynamic and how it could be even more toxic than it is, even though the number of fish is relatively small. Um, you know, walk, walk, walk us through the numbers uh, for the big companies, Leonardo being one of them, parent company of Leonardo DRS, one of our sponsors, uh, and obviously Rheinmetall being the other. Yeah, OK. I mean, Anglo-French tensions, first of all. I mean, I, I don't think the French actually care terribly about the Northern Ireland Protocol, except in as much as this is clearly something with which to beat the, the Johnson uh, government uh, with. They clearly do care a great deal about fish uh, because a lot of uh, the constituencies that voted for uh, President Macron uh, in the previous election were coastal communities that have a high dependency on fishing. And therefore, the fact that the entire rules for fishing have changed as a consequence of Brexit is causing the French an immense amount of stress and uh, having a similar effect on, on, on the British at the moment. So Anglo-French relations have not improved in the last week. We could probably, we probably will talk about this every single week until the, the French elections are over. Uh, you know, May, June next year. Um, and that's that's very sorry, well, very sad, because while that is going on, the British and the French are not working together as certainly over the last 20, 30 years or so, we've done generally pretty well. Uh, uh, you know, we we have historically, or in, in the last 20, 30 years, regarded the French as being our closest allies in Europe, if only because the British and the French have very similar attitudes and approaches to uh, out-of-area operations. Uh, but frankly, that's all um, being put to one side at the moment because the the personal relations between Johnson and Macron are dreadful, and I can't see any signs of that cha- changing. And it's it's very sad. So let's get back to earnings. Um, two companies that I, th- I think matter in the European aerospace and defence sector reported this week: uh, Leonardo uh, in Italy and Rheinmetall in Germany. Leonardo, Leonardo is a paradox. Eighty percent of its business is defence, including DRS. In, in the US, but also including a train, uh, you know, jet trainer business uh, in Italy, a very, very good uh, defense electronics business in the UK uh, and Italy, a share of the MBDA missile business. Um, and so, you know, that, those really, oh, and sorry, and Augusta Westland, the, you know, the world number don't know, two, three helicopter companies, depending on uh, which day of the week it is. Those are very, very good businesses, but they're totally overshadowed at the moment by their civil aerostructures business which is bleeding cash and bleeding profit. Uh, and at the moment, the civil aerostructures business is bleeding about 400 million euros a year of cash. And that pretty much 
you know, um, outweighs all the cash that's being earned by the defence businesses. So they say that's going to turn over. They're going to produce three billion of cumulative cash flow by 2025. Going to be very back end loaded. So don't hold your breath. And um, it does require the aerostructures business to be restructured much more significantly than they announced last week. And they really, we were very disappointed. And basically, they said 500 uh, redundancies uh, or early retirements because it's very difficult to to do redundancies in uh, Italy. Um, low seven eight Boeing seven eight seven volumes really hold that business back. The ATR regional turboprop business is on it is on its uppers anyway. Um, we suspect it won't produce positive cash flow before 2026. And that means that the, the good efforts of the defence businesses are really overshadowed by a business that's 20% of the, of the whole. That's a great shame. It's a mark of how difficult restructuring is in Italy. But actually, it's also a mark of the degree to which the Leonardo management are too beholden to politicians in Italy and hence aren't prepared to do um, uh, to take tough decisions. My personal view, very happy to be on the record on that. Switch to Rheinmetall. Rheinmetall is another, you know, Rheinmetall is as German as Leonardo is, is as Italian. Rheinmetall's problem is that it is a mixed defence and auto components company. Right. German politicians see it as a German engineering company. And if you're a German engineering company, you are measured in terms of the number of people you employ, the number of apprentices, the number of engineers, your total revenues. German politicians don't differentiate between defence and automotive. They just want big. Uh, and as a combined defence and automotive business, Rheinmetall is big. Problem is investors just don't buy that at all. Uh, it produced okay results. Um, they've sort of fiddled around with, with the fully guidance. But you're left with the impression that the auto, auto components business is holding the defence business back, particularly in terms of multiple. And uh, they've been trying to divest part of that, the pistons business. Can't seem to get that away because the auto components market is dreadful. So, you know, and our view is until they actually come become a, a, a near pure defence business, and that's very difficult politically in Germany, you won't see the full value coming out uh, being shown by Ryan Top. Um, uh, Richard, uh, let me uh, bring you on this, right? I mean, you've been paying attention to a little bit of these earnings uh, as well. We now have transatlantic travel uh, returning as Bloomberg uh, wrote a great story. It's a lifeline to British uh, airways, but also a lot of other uh, big uh, transatlantic carriers. There's also a lot of hope that that means something positive for uh, Boeing, right? Which uh, has the edge in uh, wide body, although I should point out, right? I mean, we had erected a tombstone over the A380, and it looks like A380s are going to be coming back into service uh, for those um, who want to fly on the world's largest ever uh, passenger uh, airliner. Walk us through what some of these storylines mean and what do you have on your mind and, you know, how you see all of this. Yeah, there's a lot going on, you know, and uh, in terms of traffic, you know, it kind of reminds me of the great uh, economist Rudy Dornbush. He always used to say uh, in economics, it takes a lot longer for things to happen than you think they should, but when they change, they have that change comes a lot faster than you thought it ever could. So, in other words, this recovery has been a very long time getting going because of border closures and whatever else. And now I think it's going to start coming roaring back, and we're going to have a heck of a well first quarter, particularly. It almost sounds like some grand expedition, but I've just booked a flight to Canada. Hooray! Uh, there's an awful lot going on, and I think things are going to start looking better. 
will that translate to better wide body numbers? And uh, this is hugely important, as you say, for Boeing, but also for Leonardo, because a big chunk of that aerostructures business that is Sash put it as bleeding cash, a lot of that is 787 related. So in addition to, of course, getting the production problems and certification problems worked out, it would just be a nice world where people wanted 787s. And because of the hangover and overcapacity, and of course, the time it takes to recover to where we would have been in terms of international traffic, it's going to take, well, uh, a few years. But at least from the 787 standpoint, it, it's going to come back. Uh, and obviously, these international traffic numbers are looking very positive. Also, it was kind of interesting, you know, ATR, that ATR business that collapsed from like 75 a year to like 20 last year or something ridiculous. And just this week, it came out and said, actually, by 2023, we'll be at 50 or something along those lines. That was a welcome level of confidence for something that looked like it was coughing blood. So good news on that front. You know, I mean, the problem with aerostructures in Italy, of course, it's, well, what Sash said, they have a hard time, well, dealing with an incredibly cyclical business that it's in in the throes of the worst cycle ever in the history of of, uh, of aircraft so you know things are a bit hard from the standpoint of well adjusting variable costs spirit of course had exactly the same headwinds but they could do the kind of major changes needed in terms of everything from furloughing workers to restructuring contracts to whatever else with leonardo it's just you know <laughs> they, the costs kind of stay in place and they just take body blows until the market recovers so hence all the the discussion you know from the standpoint of uh, what happens next we still see international traffic getting back uh, by sometime in 2023 uh, again i think it's going to be a fantastic next year and a lot of the sentiment towards these businesses is probably going to change for the positive in that time uh, unless uh, either uh, you, Ron, or uh, Sash have anything uh, to add uh, to Richard's excellent uh, analysis of uh, where we are on the market uh, and how I should just note that it's consistent with uh, Richard's uh, excellent modeling, uh, we can move on to the question of uh, the Boeing uh, settlement and talk a little bit about uh, Boeing uh, management and, 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 and what's next. And in this case, I may uh, sort of change up the order. But first, Ron, start us off, right? I mean, what is, does this agreement really mean anything? Because folks talk about it as somehow a 737 MAX settlement. I yeah, mean, it, it, it's I mean, 737 to a, to MAX a, related, but. Yeah, to an equity holder today, it, it, not, not really, right? I mean, it was uh, a lawsuit uh, to at the board members. Um, and, you know, I don't know anything more than it was in the press. And the press was essentially saying that, um, that it's going to be paid for out of insurance. Uh up by the board members to the company, and then I guess the company will pay it out to the to the to the shareholders. So um, it it's not you know the, it's not material really to an equity holder today. Um, now you, you have to scratch your head a little bit and say, what does it mean for you know leadership of the company and so on and so forth. And um, there's kind of knock on effects, but you know, the direct financial impact is, uh, is 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 negligible. Uh, and, and right, I mean, obviously, because uh, Dave Calhoun, who is uh, the uh, uh, chairman and chief executive of the company, is, uh, is in fact, one of those uh, directors and, and, and board members. Um, Richard, let me, let me go to you, right? There are a lot of folks who are looking at the company's problems and wondering why some of these challenges are sort of not 
getting fixed. And you and I had an interesting conversation earlier this week where the thinking was that we, we may not be thinking about this the right way, that, that maybe the company's strategic plan, and this was because we were channeling uh, McDonnell Douglas and a couple of other things in the course of that conversation, that actually a, a breakup might be the solution or perhaps management is, is regarding it that way. Walk us through your thesis, right? I mean, there are a lot of thesis, that, uh, there are a lot of ways people are thinking about this. This isn't new. We actually broached this idea some, some months ago. But, but walk us through your thinking um, and, and sort of how you look at the tea leaves. And we just want to say, right, this is not, this is just thinking through scenarios and, and potential outcomes, right? Nobody has any banking or any other interests here. Yeah, that's exactly right. I certainly have no knowledge uh, of any of this, but just a couple of guys speculating here, you know, boy, none of this makes any sense whatsoever. Like you say, except you look at it in a completely different way, and you know the way you're phrasing it, I'll 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 take that and run with it. Was it uh, given you know about the the kind of fall of the Roman Empire? You know, the barbarians, after all, were some sort of solution. You know, I mean, it could be that that is the way that maybe we're not looking at this from the standpoint of a well private equity background, which Dave Calhoun has. You know, I mean, maybe the answer is financial mechanics, and two things sort of drive me. To, to this. One is that for a while, as experts like Rod have said, from an investor sentiment standpoint, this is a commercial jetliner story for the company. So, okay, let's take all the other units and unlock value by selling them off and then sell off the jetliner unit. And the second, of course, is that the market is coming back, as we were discussing just a moment ago. So the timing for this breakup and sale would take place at an incredibly opportune moment where somebody is going to look at the commercial jetliner unit and say, wow, this is just an incredible ride up. I want to be part of it because this is an industry with very high barriers to entry. And meanwhile, the defense unit, boy, I, I think it would fit very well with, the, with some other folks. Northrop Grumman comes to mind. The combination of Boeing's legacy programs coupled with Northrop's, well, vastly better emphasis on engineering and investing in the future would be an incredibly potent counterweight to, say, Lockheed Martin's defense business. Boeing Global Services, of course, would attract a very nice price. I don't know from who, Alfred Harris, somebody like that. I don't know. And commercial jets, well, either on its own or maybe part of GE, or part of Raytheon or something like that. Either way, it, none of everything we've seen over the past couple of years does not make any sense at all in terms of how this company executes on programs, in terms of the decisions it make, makes in fixing major problems, in terms of executive appointments. None of it makes any sense uh, in terms of creating new products that respond to the Airbus challenge in the middle of the market, as the four of us have lamented for the past couple of years now. The only thing that makes any sense to me is, no, there's something far bigger going on here. And again, like you said, I have absolutely no knowledge. We have absolutely no knowledge. It's just speculation. But I think if it's if it's true, I'd give it a, I don't know, 30% chance, something like that. The consequences are enormous. And, uh, you know, we, we, we should point out, right, I mean, there are potentially a lot of problems with that, although your solution is a relatively elegant one, right? It doesn't necessarily change the market dynamics that much. And you could actually sell it to lawmakers, uh, it, you know, and because I think this administration is expected to take a very tough uh, line on greater market concentration. But you could just say like, hey, th this, this changes some elements of uh, the puzzle. 
but you know, overall, uh, may not necessarily change the dynamic unless you, of course, you took you take Boeing. I mean, I, I think it raises market concentration problems. I I think you know there are a lot of people who wouldn't be comfortable with it, and Boeing historically has benefited from a very very strong defense. Uh, business, right? I mean, the company won T7, it won MQ25. It looks like it's delivering on both of those programs. Uh, you know, obviously everything has challenges, but uh, those, uh, you know, clearly represent kind of a future opportunities. Uh, KC46 appears to be turning a corner and that's going to be delivered. More more Americans are looking at Wedgetail as a solution uh, to the U.S. Air Force's uh, you know, absolutely geriatric uh, combat electronics fleet, right? Whether you're talking about the AWACS or, uh, or, or Joint Stars or anything else. Um, you know, was, uh, Sash, let me bring you into the conversation and, and what you think of that, putting your, uh, you know, your decades of experience to the problem and, and how, you see, how you see it. I mean, is this, w- would that be a potential solution? And does that explain anything from your standpoint, given how closely you look at the company? Look, when I when I used to work for a very big investment bank, that talk would have got me salivating. I it would have been unbelievably exciting. Let's go do deals. Let's do breakup. Let's do spin-offs. Um, thinking about it now and trying to be dispassionate about it, I'm utterly appalled. And that people should, you know, be thinking like that and thinking that. A breakup of Boeing is a solution to Boeing's problems is absolutely shocking. And if there are people in Congress who think that this will make America stronger, then that is truly, truly shocking. Ultimately, you know, I mean, Boeing has a myriad of problems, but some of its problems might be solved by Boeing investing more and thinking more about engineering and a little bit less about paying money out to shareholders. Um, If Dave Calhoun, the chairman and chief executive, thinks otherwise, then, you know, we have to challenge whether that is the, you know, it's in the best interests, the longer term interests of Boeing's shareholders and the best interests of Boeing's um, stakeholders and, you know, were this a European company, which is not something I necessarily recommend, but it's another way of doing the job, the idea that you would break the company up and leave what is already an incredibly weak commercial aircraft business all on its own would be vetoed out of court. You know, ultimately, the German government vetoed the merger of BA systems and what was then EADS, now Airbus, um, short-sighted but they were you know they were thinking about what was then the you know the national interest for germany um congress should be saying to boeing you actually have you know either you sort yourself out or we will sort you out but america will be weaker with a commercial aircraft business that is weaker it would seem to me um so that leaves you know is ge going to come along as a charity pick Boeing commercial up combine it Let's worry about the antitrust stuff later. That's going to be a laugh and a half. Um, and then invest what it takes, which is at least two new aircraft programs, $35 billion and change, and set out to actually compete with uh, Airbus rather than being a rather weak second. And if Comac ever got their act together, probably, you know, joint second at best. I don't know. But, you know, the, you know breaking the company up to make it stronger is a joke and a really bad taste one in my view. But it's a, you know, we have to raise these issues now and challenge them before they, you know, before they become consensus. 
Um, uh, Ron, I, this, since this is a highly speculative conversation and you work for one of the world's leading uh, banks, I think uh, you're relatively constrained on what you can say. But what can you add to this discussion? And maybe let's use this as a bridge to go to the late, great Jean Pearson, um, you know, started uh, with the... Um, you know, obviously in the aerospace industry in the late 1960s, uh, was there when Airbus uh, was was born between 1985 and 1998, led the company and grew it from 17% of the world market to about 40%. Uh, and now Airbus uh, obviously is in a in a dominant position. Talk, talk to us about the speculation and, and your thoughts on it, and then use it as an opportunity to transition, because ultimately, it's about management blocking and tackling, it's about making deals, it's about investing in products. Um, that that you know gives you a competitive advantage. Sure. So um, let me let me go through what I can say. So one thing I can say is, in you know the current investor psyche, this isn't the thesis, right? So and, you know folks aren't owning or not owning Boeing today because of uh, you know a potential breakup or takeout or something that that's just not where where folks are. Um, in in the investment community, is there a view that Boeing might have to raise equity? Yes, that's talked about a lot, that Boeing might have to do that to fix their balance sheet. And at the same time, not only could they repair the balance sheet, but they might be able to raise enough capital to do another airplane. That's the thing that comes up in discussion. And then if I stand back you know, farther from this a little bit, everything at Boeing today, ultimately, in my humble opinion, is fixable, right? Not that it's right. an easy thing to fix, um, and it's going to take some time, but everything is fixable. So... You know, we'll we'll see. Um, you know, you know, I think you know Richard's thesis is, you know, it's there's you know, uh, how can I say? It? Stranger things have happened. Um, so we'll see. Um, but in the broader investment psyche today, that that's not where and, and, you know the investors are are, are thinking. Um, and, and 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 before we go to John, do you think that the company is making uh, progress, uh, or from a investor standpoint, making progress as quickly as it should be, or is the company showing enough progress where folks are looking at this and saying, "Look, everybody has challenges. They're working their way through it. We know it's, you know." I mean, in fairness, right? I mean, when you get into problems this big, it, it's not like you flip a light switch and you change it, right? It's it's a, it's a long, yeah. It's, 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 it's actually it's a complicated question. Um, I would say uh, a couple things. From an investor perspective, most likely, if you're buying Boeing today, it's not because you think it's going to turn around. It's because you just want to play the up cycle. And almost regardless of where their share ends up vis-a-vis Airbus in five or 10 years, things are going up from here, right? So that, that's a view that if you want to play the up cycle, it's one of two major companies that are beneficiaries of this. So it's a way to do it. I think when you think longer term, you know, it's kind of, I guess the phraseology, it would be a terminal value issue. So once the cycle kind of gets discounted into the shares, you may or may not think it is today. <clears throat> if you don't think it is, you own it. Once the cycle gets discounted in, then you start worrying about, okay, well, you know, what is the terminal value of this company and how is it impacted by its you know, relative competitive positioning? And that's where all this other stuff comes in, comes into play. Um, are they making movements in the right direction? I think so. You know, little ones. Um, but but the reality is, it's going to take a long time. It's a big organization. It's a lot of people. Um, even if you play everything perfectly, it just takes time. Uh, and you know, my one of the lessons I have from doing this, you know, as long as I have, 
is the street tends to be impatient once things change overnight and they just, they just never do. Um, they can kind of at a small company, but they never do at a large company. It just, it just takes time to change cultures and, and, and everything you gotta, you gotta do. It's, it's, it's slow. Um, so, so I think, I think that's where we are. Um, I, I do believe, and we've, you know, written this that, you know, in terms of their aircraft development plan, um, they could be doing more. They could be spending more on engineering. Um, I think if they look, you know, in their own ranks, at engineers who are departing the company and where they're going, there, there's reasons for that. Um, as we've discussed before, if you want to work on really cool things that fly, that at one point in history, Boeing was one of the only places you could go to do that. That's not the case today, right? There's a lot of places you could go. And if you're a young engineering getting out of school, engineer getting out of school and you want to work someplace and maybe change the world, uh, there's a lot of things you could do. You might not change the world, but at least you took a swing at it, right? Um, right. So um, that, I think I think that that's kind of where we are. As a transition to you know Airbus, you know, it's remarkable what you know the the Airbus organization has been able to do. <clears throat> it's been a pretty steady cadence movement forward, um, and kind of up and to the right in terms of market share, profitability, transition from what was thought of as more of a, a state entity to now today, I think, um, you know, Sash, tell me if you disagree, is kind of much more uh, of just a commercial company. It's a company. It's not, you're not buying equity in NASA anymore. You're, you're buying equity in you know, just a company. Um, and it's- Well, I, actually, Ron, I'd say you're not buying equity in the European Union either anymore. You're buying a company that's based in the EU, but is a company. You're absolutely right. Right. And, and, you know, that's in no small part um, due to, to the, the, the leadership there. Um, and that's a hard thing to do. I mean, Embraer kind of you know, from you know, the, my own coverage, I mean, it's, it's something that they have had to go through and it's, it's, it's a painful process. It can take time. It doesn't happen overnight, but it really does seem like Airbus has navigated that uh, quite well. And in, in no small part due to the leadership of um, the various leaders they had over the years. And let me take it to you, Sash, and and Richard, to you, right, because you actually covered John Pearson uh, over a very long period uh, of uh, time. Uh, And, right, I mean, the counterpoint to this and what Boeing guys used to say as well, I mean, these guys are so grossly subsidized and they're getting money lavished on them and they can afford to make screw ups and, you know, they don't end up uh, holding the bag. Obviously, the European uh, answer would be very different. Hey, Boeing, you benefit from a lot of commercial, a lot of defense contracts that help give you this cash. And oh, by the way, you also get tax breaks and a whole bunch of other, uh, you you know, uh, advantages that you get out of the system. Sash, talk to us about John Pearson. Uh, what he meant to the industry, what made him uh, special, right? I mean, he was the bear of the Pyrenees, you know, a guy who was willing to drop his pants or rip off his shirt to make a case, uh, as uh, and numerous stories and books have uh, sort of uh, laid, laid out. Uh, and and certainly somebody who was a larger-than-life figure who had a tendency of hiring uh, larger-than-life figures, whether it was John Leahy or other or, or others. Talk to us a little bit about his his legacy and what he meant. And then, yeah, Richard, look, I'm, I want to get I'm, your take. I'm going to take you on on that thing about, you know, subsidies and so forth. Even when that is true on either side, Boeing or Airbus, it does not matter. These are indus- This is an industry, commercial aircraft, which is nationally important to every nation that takes part in it and participates in it. And ultimately, you're judged by, you know, your score in the world and nothing else. And, you know, once you start worrying about or complaining about subsidy here, subsidy there, you're roadkill. 
you are going to lose. You've actually got to come up with better products, however they are funded, that uh, sell to as many airlines in the world as possible. Jean Pierson's legacy ultimately comes down to, I think, one, le uh, one letter and three digits, A320. He didn't launch the A320. The A320 was launched in, 19 in 1984. Jean Pierson only became CEO of Airbus in 1986, but he pushed that aircraft. He, he got it to the stage where it actually flew, uh, was certificated, started being sold. He sold it, among other things, uh, among other airlines to um, Northwest and to Delta and to uh, anti-US um, uh, Airways. And, you know, the A320 is the aircraft that transformed Airbus from making interesting, sometimes quite attractive, but commercially idiosyncratic wide bodies into being the the company it is today. And it's the A320 in its neo form that is killing Airbus. That is all that matters. It really is. Killing, uh, killing it, Boeing. Sorry, I apologize. Killing Boeing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, it, whatever else you think about, it's the A320 today in its neo form. That is the aircraft that is killing Boeing and making uh, Airbus, you know, the, the, clear number one in the industry. And that's Pearson's uh, legacy. And what an astonishing legacy to have. There will be no other Airbus uh, CEO that will have that sort of legacy to, uh, to look back on. Uh, Richard, uh, you know, what can you tell us about Jean Pearson that we don't uh, already know? And where do you think he falls in the pantheon? Because aside from an analyst, you're kind of a historian of this industry, right? Where, where does you rank? Yeah, I think you've got to take a middle ground here, right? Because, um, boy, what a larger-than-life personality. And I spend a lot of time railing against people who are driven purely by balance sheet considerations who've, you know, if not ruined aviation, then, well, taken a lot of the fun out of it and certainly taken a lot of the cool technology development out of it. And this guy was the exact opposite. Uh, did amazing things. Grew market share. Two things is that you have to see it in the broader context of post-war French aerospace industrial policy and all industrial policy and indeed European industrial policy, a lot of it was a failure. Commercial jets and Airbus were the one shining success story. And there were a lot of other really bad ideas up to sadly and including Concorde, you know, just complete value destroyers. This guy was given charge of the best industrial policy they could come up with and he did great with it. Um, and he did it in a way that was enormously fun, charismatic, and a lot of value add. And yeah, just as Sash said, boy, that A320, that is really hitting Boeing. Um, on the other hand, well, the balance sheet thing. I don't think he ever really had close contact with one. And I'm not going to rail against subsidies. Sash is absolutely right about that. You complain about those, you lose in the battle. But on the other hand, it's important to, to know that Airbus today, like any company, actually has to pay a lot of attention to a balance sheet. I'm not sure, so sure he did. And that, of course, explains the A380 that came on his watch. That I regard as the greatest atrocity in this business. Yes, they're coming back in tiny numbers. These are new jets. Why aren't they all coming back? I mean, it, this was a really crap idea that destroyed tens of billions of dollars and almost sank the company if it weren't for massive intervention. So I, I can't help but temper my enthusiasm a little bit by what it says that he was able to do this without paying any attention to the business case and the profitability equation whatsoever. 
All right, we're going into lightning round because we have uh, five minutes. We express our condolences, by the way, to uh, to Jean and uh, to Jean's family uh, and sympathies uh, to all of his uh, co-workers because the man was a true uh, giant. Um, very quickly, lightning round. Sash, a lot of ground vehicle competitions uh, going on. Give us a quick survey uh, around the world. And then I want to get Ron and Richard. We should have discussed uh, the artist conception that the United States Navy released uh, last week, uh, or I should say week before last, uh, about what its uh, future, uh, its next generation fighter should should look like, which looks like a tailless design, et cetera. And I want to get you guys' take on that. But very quickly, uh, Sash, give us kind of a survey around the world because there's a lot of ground combat vehicle competitions uh, that, are, that are forming up. Yeah, I mean, I can count, I can count four of which three are genuine competitions. And between them, therefore, you know, well over a thousand vehicles, uh, maybe even you know, fifteen hundred vehicles, and they tend to be for heavy vehicles as well, uh, you know, tracked infantry fighting vehicles. So this is the top end, excluding main battle tanks of the uh, of the land systems market. Australia is the big one, the la um, land four hundred phase three requirement uh, for three, four, five, six hundred, take your pick, um, tracked infantry fighting vehicles. It could well be announced um, the end of this month or, or into December. The, the uh, finalists are Rheinmetall with their private venture uh, Lynx uh, vehicle and Hanwha with the um, uh, K21 uh, Redback. Hanwha is a really interesting company. I mean, that's a company that's come from being very much a, a Korean producer of very good derivatives of existing designs, you know, M109, which became the, the K9 Thunder in particular. Um, but they, you know, Redback is quite clearly uh, an all Korean design and it looks a very, very competitive vehicle at a time when they are starting to sell K9, the artillery piece uh, in, in Europe. In Europe, two very important competitions, which are, they're dead drifting a bit, let's be honest, they probably won't be decided this year, but the Czech Republic and Slovakia, um, we used to be able to say that was one, one country, but no longer, but they, are, they both have requirements for uh, a, a couple of hundred uh, tracked infantry fighting vehicles. It's pretty much the same, uh, I mean, it's certainly Rheinmetall with links in there, possibly general dynamics, although I don't take that particularly seriously. BA Systems with CV90 is the, the other big European uh, competitor at the moment. And then the, you know, the final, um, I wouldn't say it's a competition, but requirement that might get announced in the next uh, couple of months or so. British Army is looking to add to um, its uh, wheeled fighting vehicle uh, requirement, which it's all currently uh, doing with Boxer, the, the KMW Rheinmetall vehicle, by looking for a, a, a mortar carrier and various other specialist roles. And again, that's a couple, probably a couple of hundred extra vehicles. So the, the, the land systems market is very, very active at the moment. And I would say certainly Australia could be decided by the end of this year. Czech Republic and uh, Slovakia, if not the end of this year, could be, could be Q1. Um, and these will really show who's got the, not just the, the, you know, the quotes unquote best product, but also is offering the best industrial solution for countries that tend to have a, a quite a high requirement for onshore production. Um, thanks very much for that survey, uh, Ron and uh, Richard. Impressions uh, on uh, what that graphic means, right? I mean, the United States Air Force is pressing ahead on its next generation air dominance airplane. The Navy has been talking about FXX for some time. Uh, there's been a lot of debate, right? What are the capabilities and what's the aircraft that 
the United States Navy needs, especially when it does not have a long-range strike capability at sea, uh, obviously is just putting in its first fifth-generation aircraft, uh, last in line and in, in getting that uh, out uh, out into the fleet in terms of the F-35. Sort of what what it, what what's your guys thinking uh, as we saw this graphic and and what it uh, means? Why don't you start us off, Ron, and then Richard? Why don't you wrap us up? Yeah, I mean, I think it the aircraft has to become um, has to be relevant in the Pacific, right? So it needs range. Um, so when you know one of the things that jumps out, and maybe this doesn't exactly come from the graphic, but it's going to need range to uh, stealth. Uh, and that maybe you can infer from you know the, the way the the aircraft look looks looked um, uh, and then uh, how do I say just a maneuverability uh, is another thing that you could maybe infer from from the graphic uh, but yeah I would say first and foremost it's just it's it's range and stealth didn't did you think it a plausible design or was it just like yeah it's it looks cool um, it's a plot. I mean, it's a, it's a, how can I say this? I mean, it's, of, of course it could be a plausible design. That doesn't mean it's the design. I mean, it right. looks like a relatively generic fighter looking thing. Um, so right, who knows, you know, right. That's right. It looks like a generative, uh, generic, you know, fighter looking thing. Uh, Richard, what, what can you tell us? Because I know that you're trying to pay, you know, you're paying attention to this, uh, among other things. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, gosh, some, one of the one of the commentaries uh, out there compared it very closely to some artist rendering that appeared many years ago. So I don't think the artist rendering means very much, uh, except that it's going to be new, which, of course, means this is the first time that the Navy in 30, 40 years will break with the Hornet template. Um, <laughs> if indeed they go ahead with this, having said that, you know, they found out from A12 and NATF that if you get this wrong, you might not have enough planes to fill your carriers and you might lose carriers in the great budget war. Uh, so the Navy tends to be pretty damn conservative about these things for that reason. Um, this is also the first time in oh, like half a century or something that they're probably going to have to launch a new airplane design if they do that without help from the Marines. The Marines have cheerfully divorced the Blue Water Navy going their own way with their own amphibious assault ships and the F-35B. Uh, that's a real complication because, of course, the last time they did this was the F-14, late 60s, early 70s. The Hornet, the F-4, all the other main Navy fighters out there, well, the Marines bought into it big time and bought their, brought their impressive budget capabilities to the fight also. Um, so this is completely different. They're going to have to overcome that fear of not be having enough planes to fill decks in the event something goes wrong from a program execution or funding standpoint. And they're going to have to do it without the budgetary input from the Marines. Um, on the other hand, yeah, as Ron said, for reasons of range, they need something out there that can survive in that West Pacific environment, which as Navy leaders have said increasingly in, in recent years, it's not the Super Hornet. So something has to be done to plan for the post 2030 environment. Um, on the other hand, the Super Hornet, well, the line is hot and it guarantees that they can fill carrier decks with something which reduces, of course, the risk of losing a carrier or two in those budget wars. Yeah, but car carrier decks can also be filled with F-35s or unmanned long-range strike aircraft, right, that also happen to be stealthy uh, and have longer range, right? I mean, well, naval aviation hasn't seen any of those as being important. And so the, uh, the MQ-25 was forced down the service's throat 
to at least get some form of unmanned aircraft operating off the carrier deck. And, you know, it ended up being in the guise of an unmanned refueler. Yes, that's an adjunct system, though. Uh, now, it could be expanded in terms of capabilities as, uh, you know, as for the idea of um, F-35C, you know, it's important to note that the overwhelming majority of F-35Cs that have been budgeted for so far are for the Marines, not the Blue Water Navy. If Correct, you because the Navy funding, has wanted out of that program since the day it got into it. Yeah, and they've gotten, I think they funded maybe 20 over the past decade or something. So if they show any intention of forming more than a squadron or two of these things, they certainly haven't shown their hand with it. Um, Ron, you uh, wanted to interject. Go ahead. You get the, yeah, line, you get the yeah, just word. maybe one one other point. And I'm just curious, Bagger, what you, your sense on this? You know, when you look at that rendering, it has a sense of YF twenty three. So, and you know, I don't know, you know, if this is a little, you know, light shining towards Northrop or not. I don't read too much into it, but um, it was, you know, kind of YF twenty three esque. Uh, it, it was YF-23-esque uh, from that standpoint. And yes, you know, you might be able to make a plausible case, uh, right? I mean, we're at this point where a flat tail is no longer a disqualifier as we've got, you know, as we've seen with X-47 and obviously with MQ-25, you can operate, you know, the Navy was once like, oh, I need vertical tails for directional stability coming on the carrier. Um, obviously, that was kind of overwrought, uh, to be perfectly candid. Uh, you know, the, the, the most important thing for me is, have systems commonality with the Air Force. Do not build two high-end, very similar combat aircraft that do not have core systems commonality. Uh, and that's where I'm afraid, you know, you don't want to do an F-35 again, we got it, but at least have a common core, common propulsion, common radars, common subsystems, common actuators, common radios, uh, common processes, uh, and you'll at least then not create two maintenance nightmares that have to be supported on the uh, you know, farthest reaches of the Pacific with a whole bunch of unique parts. That's the only thing that I would have to say. And it's not abundantly clear to me that those kind of conversations are happening, to be honest. People say like, boy, you know, that's a really good idea. You know, I, I would like to believe that this new generation of leadership, especially embodied by the likes of Frank Kendall and Carlos del Toro, two people who know acquisition to their core, uh, will will be able to put some real rudder inputs into this to make sure that we get to the right outcome. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, I hope you guys have a terrific evening and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. As always, Vago, great to be here. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Thanks very much for doing this, Fargo. Great to be on. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.